Behold our God. Come let us adore him. There's, there's nothing greater in the world than to behold Jesus as king. And really, as we turn to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, I just want you to be thinking about that. What does it mean that Jesus is king? How does that change our lives? What does it mean that somebody can declare, Behold our God. Come let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. He's the one who holds the oceans in his hands. He's the one who flung the stars into existence and knows them by name. This is King Jesus. Would, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 and let's pray that the Lord would bless our time and that we'd be helped, that we'd be gripped by this word. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. And as I come to this text, I come to it with trepidation. I come to it realizing that what's here can change all of our lives forever. Not just here and now, but for the next 10 billion years. That what is unfolded here is a mystery. What is unfolded here in this passage is something that is so hope-giving, so life-giving, so reality-shaping that it can change us all forever. That it can make a difference in the midst of a horrible, difficult season where it seems discouraging to just walk outside, to just walk out into the supermarket, to look on the television and see so much disarray, so much discouragement, so much schism, even in our nation. And there's only one thing that can help that, Lord. You breaking in. You sending your son into human history to begin the kingdom of God. And I pray that your spirit would come upon your word in such a way that we would all be helped, that we would all be gripped by this passage, and we would be given hope in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of difficulty, and hope to go take the message of this great king into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, the past couple weeks, we've been reading in our home the Chronicles of Men the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you haven't read that, it is an incredibly good book. Um, and essentially what it is, 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 it's an allegory of the gospel of the kingdom. It's an allegory of Jesus and ultimately the hope that he brings into a kingdom that is been cursed by sin. And so in the story, you have a lion that stands for Jesus. His name's Aslan. And then you have this magical land that these kids stumble into. And, and uh, Lewis has this beautiful line. C.S. Lewis wrote the book. And he says, it's always winter 
in Narnia and never Christmas. What a picture of curse, right? What a picture of always winter, always cold, icy, dark, but never Christmas, never beautiful, never life-giving, never hope-giving. That's the way Narnia was. And so as the story sort of unfolds, you see um, people basically oppressed. All of these animals and all the people who live in the kingdom of the White Witch are in fear. They're uh, under kind of a terror and under the spell of this witch. And then sort of as the book unfolds, you have this uh, moment when a beaver whispers. Everybody's kind of quiet and nobody wants to say too much. And the beaver says, Aslan's on the move. King Aslan's on the move. Aslan's coming. And then a few chapters later, somebody says it again and says, Aslan's here. And as you start hearing this message that Aslan is coming, the effects of winter start wearing off. Winter starts thawing out. Spring is coming. Because King Aslan, who remember stands for King Jesus, is coming into the world of Narnia to destroy the White Witch and to release the captives and to set people free. And my friends, that is exactly what Jesus came to do in our world. Because our world is in darkness. Our world's in a winter that is cold and dark and frigid and held fast by sin. And there is only one hope. It won't be a political leader that will save us. It won't be a cure for cancer that will ultimately save us. It won't be our technology. It won't be our ability to educate ourselves because you can be the most white collar educated person and be a swindling crook of a corporate company, or you could be the most impoverished person feeling like you're forced to do wickedness in some sense because of your poverty. Both need Jesus. Both need the king to break in to the darkness. And if we think about it, deep down, we all know something is very, very wrong when we look around us. Deep down, we know we have a reminder every single day day that something is not right in this world. And when we think even deeper, we know something's not right in our hearts and we need a rescue. So let's look at our passage in Matthew chapter four and verse 12. And we're going to watch this text kind of explode these kingdom realities in our life. We're going to watch what it means for Jesus to tell us who he is. Verse 12. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And from that day, or from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Imagine that. He's announcing this. He's announcing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is, this is like a cataclysmic reality. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is on the throne. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our rescuer. He is our help. And he's come. And he's announcing himself. And we see Matthew kind of pointing to this prophecy. This prophecy, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And there's great hope because the king has finally come. And this king was a preacher. How many of you know that? That Jesus was a preacher? That Jesus actually came proclaiming something, he had a message. He had a message he heralded and he preached. He preached a message like nobody else. Sometimes I'm often asked, you know, who's your favorite preacher? If you were to go back in history, who would be the, your favorite person that you could listen to? If you could be a fly on the wall in their chapel and you could hear them. And I always say two people, Charles Spurgeon who was a famous preacher in England in the 19th century. He was called the Prince of Preachers. And there was nobody who could put together language as poetically and profoundly as Charles Spurgeon and speak with power and authority. He was the first mega church pastor. So he was the first person who would actually come to uh, a building and it was so there was such a demand for his preaching that they had to get a bigger building and then a bigger building and then a bigger building because when the gospel is preached with authority and with power the people begin to come the people begin to hunger and that is what was happening with Charles Spurgeon and pretty soon he was meeting in something called the Surrey Gardens which was like you know Madison Square Garden think of that and the people would come to hear him preach. The Prince of Preachers. And he used to say, I want to make a beeline to the cross. Every time I go to a text, I want to take that text and I, I want to make a beeline to the cross and preach Christ crucified and risen as a king. And then the other one that I would want to be on a kind of a fly on the wall is Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who was a British preacher in England, and he preached in the 20th century. And his understanding of preaching, this is what he called it, check this out, logic on fire. Logic or the word of God coming through a man on fire. Isn't that what we need? 
We need to hear the word of God coming through a man on fire with such an electric force that it compels us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is what Martin Lloyd-Jones was all about. But as good as these preachers were, they were nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus is the greatest preacher who ever lived. When he spoke, he spoke with such profound authority that it commanded attention. When he was questioned, he spoke in such a way that no one could undo the things he said because they were truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when he speaks, he speaks the way, the truth, and the life. He speaks with such authority that it commands our attention, our allegiance, and our obedience. And he announced in verse 17 the kingdom coming in his very person. Sometimes we balk at the kingdom of God, right? And we think it just sounds kind of like kingdom language and it doesn't really mean anything to us. But in the New Testament... The kingdom was about God's rule over his people. Now, God rules over the world and he's king over all the earth. But when Jesus speaks about the kingdom, he is speaking about it in such a way that he's drawing our attention to the fact that the kingdom is breaking into human hearts. The kingdom is breaking into our world. And just like we learned in the Narnia story, the, the effects of the curse are beginning to fade. The effects of the curse are beginning to be reversed. And what happens when Jesus arrives is he calls people to repentance, doesn't he? When you hear the announcement that Jesus has come into the world, and we already know our world is very dark, the very first thing that we need to realize is he is calling us to repentance. And repentance is changing your mind about something. I used to, when I was um, first a Christian, I used to wear this shirt that said Repent 180. And it was this kind of skater shirt. And I was kind of into skating, but not really good at skating at the time. And so I put the shirt on and repent 180 and that's the idea is that you turn completely around and you do a 180 you were going one direction with your life and you turn around and go another direction and Jesus is saying we need to turn from our sin and our self and our whole way of doing things and turn towards him and surrender our lives to him that's what he's all about He's all about gripping your heart, turning it around, and making it brand new. He's all about taking your real sins, struggling with real sins that have touched your families, that have touched your friendships, that have touched your work. Struggle with gossiping, struggle, struggle with deception, Fear, worry, 
all the things that tangle us up. And Jesus wants to get at that and make us new. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the same thing that we saw John the Baptist said. Look with me in chapter 3, just one chapter earlier. John the Baptist came onto the scene as a fiery prophet, clothed in camel's hair. And it says in chapter 3, verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching. He was a preacher too. And he came in the wilderness of Judea and he said what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was pointing forward to Jesus, and now Jesus has come. John was pointing forward as the voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Because in those days when a king came, people would go before him and they would level out the land and make sure, it's kind of like rolling out the red carpet. Prepare for the king. And John looked people dead in the eyes and he said, get ready because the king is coming. His whole mission was to move people from a place of complacency and sluggishness and just like, oh, wow, it's just another day, you know, to awaken them to the gravity of their sin. That even religious people, religious Jews, who had been thinking they were serving God, but inwardly they were far from God. Jesus would have harsh words later when he would say, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside there's nothing but dead men's bones. John the Baptist was stepping into that before Jesus and getting them ready and saying, repent, turn around from all of that. And I just want us to think about that. The announcement of the kingdom of God is a hope-giving thing, but it is only hopeful if you and I come to the end of ourselves and realize that we are in desperate need of God's forgiveness, of repentance of sins, of turning completely around and giving our lives over to God. And for Christians, it's a way of life. Repentance and faith is a way of life. So when we walk into this, Matthew is wanting us really to get, get before us this idea that the people are in abject discouragement, darkness, and without hope, and the kingdom's beginning to dawn, and just like Aslan is on the move, Jesus is on the move. Jesus is before us in this passage and he's helping us to see that something has changed in our world forever and it can make the difference in your life for the next 10 billion years. Not just today, but the next 10 billion years. You can know the king for eternity. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. And my next point is 
that Jesus calls us. The kingdom calling. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. So Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. Now Jesus is calling disciples to himself. And these are a couple of fishermen. And you might be thinking like, hey, I'm not really that special. You know, I'm just an average Joe. I'm an average guy. Jesus called a couple of foul mouthed fishermen out from what they were doing. And he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the call to us. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me. And what do they do? Immediately, it says, in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. They followed him. Could you imagine if Jesus was to look right at you and say, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It would stop you in your tracks. He looked right at you and he said, follow me. And what do they do with immediacy, with absolute obedience? They turn and they give up what they were doing as fishermen. And they even leave their father. Verse 22 says, right? Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. John and, and James said, we have to follow Jesus. Jesus wants our total commitment to him as king. And he calls us to commit to him and put him above family and above our occupations and our vocations. Jesus wants to be first in our hearts. And perhaps Jesus is asking you today, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Notice that there's a mission. This following, it, it takes a leaving of your former way of life and a turning towards Jesus and being willing to go with him on a mission to do something totally new. And it's this imagery of kind of fishermen taking a net, throwing it into the sea and dragging it up onto the boat. That's how they fished. And God is calling you and I to take the net of God, the net of the gospel, and cast it out into the sea of the world in faith, as proclaimers, as fishers of men, and pray and see what the Lord might do and see what the Lord might bring in 
he's called us to be fishers of men. I, I could just imagine being there, you know, just thinking about him saying, Peter. And it happens to be a Peter there. <laughs> Follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men. Never in a million years did I think that I would ever be preaching. When my grandma said, when I was five years old, you're going to be a preacher. But Jesus calls all of us to be fishers of men. Jesus calls every single person who names the name of Christ, who has called him king, who has made him Lord, who has heard the call of Jesus here because Jesus calls and disciples follow. And they follow him on his mission. And Jesus was a preacher of the gospel, and every one of us are called to preach the good news to a world that is in darkness. Remember, always winter and never Christmas. When you look out into the world, it's always winter and never Christmas without Jesus at the center. But Jesus is calling people to something different. He's calling people to a total commitment. He doesn't want divided loyalties. He's not like, follow me, but go ahead and fix all the stuff that you're going to, you know, you've got some stuff to do first, you know. I mean, do, do a Sunday, maybe even a midweek Bible study, but the rest is all yours. No, he wants our whole life. He wants our whole life. And he's calling us to have a heart that is single-minded, fixed on him. And I think of Solomon, King Solomon. He started out really good. He was faithful. He had a heart for the Lord. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of great wisdom. And he asked for wisdom above all things to guide and, and rule Israel. But something happened along the line. He began to compromise. He began to marry foreign women. He was doing it initially for political purposes and trying to figure out a way to, you know, um, solidify his kingdom instead of trusting God. And pretty soon, Solomon had 700 wives. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit of a no-no. And, and ultimately, these wives didn't just sit there as part of a collection harem they began to influence him in ungodly ways. And pretty soon, Solomon is an idolater because he had a divided heart. And I want you to think about today, what is there, if you were to put it on a whiteboard, what, what is there that, that's holding you back from a total commitment to Jesus? What is there in your life that you need to let go of that's excess baggage? That's something that's not helping you. That's something that's ultimately dragging you down away from the things of God that Jesus is going to turn to you and say, follow me. Follow me in that area. Maybe it's your use of media. Maybe it's the, your committedness to certain things that are more important than kingdom realities. But these men saw Jesus 
as they were doing their own vocation, they were lifelong fishermen. And Jesus said, in one instance, follow me. And they turned and they followed. Oh, that God would breathe a work on his people that would create the rock-solid commitment that says, Lord Jesus, I will follow you no matter what. I will follow you at any cost. I will follow you when it becomes illegal to preach the gospel. I will follow you when you can't speak out on issues of sexuality because somebody will say you're a bigot. Or you can't speak the clear word about human gender. That men are men and women are women. And that there's a design and a fittedness for life. And it will cost you something to do what is right. Will you follow Jesus then? Will you follow Jesus when it becomes unpopular in our culture around us? Will you follow Jesus when you have that trepidation in your heart and you know you should share the gospel, but you're afraid you might get rejected? We have these decisive moments in our life when God calls us to follow him in the uncomfortable realities of living in a fallen world. But get this, we have the greatest message about a kingdom that has come, that has broken to this winter-torn world and has brought spring into the hearts of God's people and radiated in them forgiving love, transforming hope, and new hearts. And the law of God itself is written on them. And they begin to live a life that is supernatural in a world that is corrupt and dark and needs the light to dawn. Will you say in your heart, Lord, I will follow you wherever you take me. I will commit to the Great Commission. Because Jesus commissions the church and says, All authority has been given to me among men. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things. But lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus wants you to know he's going to be with you when you take the name of Christ to the nations, when you take the name of Christ to your family members, when you take the name of Jesus into your city, in your county, into supermarkets, into grocery stores, into banks and coffee shops, wherever the Lord leads you. And you ask God for boldness. I was reading the book of Acts this week, and one of the things the church sees again and again is threats. Don't be talking in the name of Jesus. Don't be talking about Jesus or we'll throw you into jail. And what do they do? They don't run and hide, but they acknowledge the threat and they take it to God. And they say, God, 
Lord, sovereign God, give us boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel. They say, give us boldness to herald the news. And then they begin to spread the word. And every time the church gets persecuted, you know what happens? The gospel spreads like wildfire. Stephen is the church's first martyr and he's killed by Saul, really, at the hands of Saul. And what happens is the church begins to scatter all throughout the region. And the people of God preach the gospel in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The gospel begins to spread out. So as we go out in the midst of our world, as we're following the call of Jesus, as we're saying, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, Jesus calls us as his disciples to go be fishers of men, and we're going to take the gospel into this world. Point number three, kingdom power. Kingdom proclaimed, kingdom called as the disciples come, and now kingdom power. You got to have power if you're going to go do this. If you guys think, and it, we're just going to go out and just in our own strength, with our own willpower, with our own energy, talk about Jesus and change hearts, it's impossible. You cannot take a dead heart and make it alive. You can't take a person in darkness and do anything to open his eyes. He has to be touched by the power of God. She has to be touched by the power of God. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, Jesus did, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from the Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is drawing crowds because the kingdom came into this world with power. Jesus is going out and he's doing three things. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's getting up in there and talking to Jewish people who are very religious. And he's saying he is the king. He's the one who is fulfilling the prophecies like the one in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read earlier. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. You know, just a few verses from that. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a messianic prophecy that talking right about who this king would be. And Jesus is that king who would break in as very God and very man into human history and announce the arrival of God's kingdom and power. And then what do we see? All the people 
being brought to him and he's healing people of what? As we look to um, verse 23, healing every disease and every affliction among people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Why? Why does he do that? If not to signify the power of God being unleashed to restore the effects of the curse that happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, corruption came into this world and into every human heart. There are diseases now and there are plagues now and there are things that afflict our souls. There are diseases and there are corruptions on every level. Man's intellect, man's affections, everywhere. And if we don't have to look very far to see it everywhere. The infection of sin has spread to all humanity and every one of us knows it. And Jesus is healing epileptics and lepers so that you and I would know that salvation is dawning, that the effects of this curse are being reversed and that he is coming to restore Eden one day. And we live in an age where salvation is breaking in and we're looking to the future when he will come again as a king and he will make all things new. Death will be no more. It'll be swallowed up in victory. Suffering will be no more. And the foretaste of these things are the healing ministry and power of Jesus unfolded in the Gospels. I think of the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years. Just a chapter or two later. She's walking and she hears of Jesus that he's this guy that can heal. And I need to go. She's desperate. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's went to all the doctors and nothing happened. And she's dejected, depressed, and without hope. And she hears he's the Messiah. And Jesus is on his way to go deal with another healing. Actually, he's going to raise the dead. And she sees him and she runs to him in a crowd. And she just thinks, if I were to just touch his garment, I don't even need to talk to him. I don't even need to talk to him. I just need to touch his garment. I can be made well. And she reaches out, touches his garment, and instantly power goes out of Jesus and heals her. And Jesus looks at her. And he says, your faith has made you well. What is that all about? It's about you and I realizing that when we actually believe who Jesus really is and that he is the king who's bringing kingdom power to do kingdom ministry, that he can actually save sinners and make people whole. And reverse everything that went wrong in that garden. And he's going to do it from 
going to be tempted by the devil, which happened before our passage. And he's going to do what Adam couldn't do when he failed in the garden and say, be gone, Satan. It is written, man shall live not by bread alone, but by every word out of the mouth of God. For you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Be gone. He does ultimately what we can't do. He defeats darkness because he's the light of the world. And he can defeat your darkness. He can defeat the darkness of those people who are fast bound in sin under nature's night and set them free. Is there somebody that you're thinking, hey, I have real people in mind who don't know Jesus, who are lost, and I want to bring them hope. Well, this message, this text is all about Jesus announcing a kingdom that will come in saving power to actually liberate people from the dead, actually liberate people from darkness, actually break the shackles of sin and bring about repentance in people's hearts, a turning away from sin towards self, or turning away from sin and self towards Christ. That's what Jesus is calling us to realize. This is power to do what you and I can't do. So you can go out with hope knowing that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He calls his disciples and sends them out to do the work of the kingdom. And he does it in the power of the kingdom. And you have that same power in you if you're a child of God. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, it is the spirit of Christ to empower you. To do what only God can do through his people. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So let's not put a basket over that light, but let it shine. We're called to do that. We're called to be fishers of men. And we don't go out with a feeble sort of hope but a rock-solid reality that this Jesus comes with the power of the kingdom. And it's a power that's breaking the forever winter that is over our whole planet. And spring is coming. The winter's thawing. Jesus is on the move. And oh, what the church would do Oh, what the church could be if we would rise up in that kingdom power and pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom break into hearts, break into the heart of those family members who don't know you, those co-workers who don't know you, so that the people dwelling in darkness would see a great light. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for this passage. I thank you. What a blessing, what a hope, what a joy it is to know 
that the kingdom of God has come. One day it will be fully realized. One day you will make all things completely new. And there are people dwelling in darkness who need the hope of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us the vision and the hope that radiates out of this passage and that you would grant life, that you would grant favor, that you would grant revival in our midst, that you would grant renewal and awakening in our lands, and that those who are dwelling in darkness would see the light of Christ has come. In Jesus' name, amen.